This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by Wealthdesk, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkins and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is April 14th. It's a Tuesday. We're at the market close today. So this is our third podcast in quarantine. I'm missing the Yeti mic for sure. We've been talking into our speakers <laughs> and it's just just not having the studios, just not the same. So bear with us, but uh, trying to push out. We need our acoustics, Drew. <laughs> we our, need our, our, our acoustic environment. We need the studio. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, as of now, what we're seeing is markets were up again today. The Dow was up a little over 500 points or 0.2.39% ended the day at 23,949.76. The S&P 500 was up 3.06%, ended the day at 2,846.06. We saw the VIX fall 8.28%, ended the day at 37.76. So volatility has certainly cratered over the last couple of weeks due to the rebound that we're seeing this week and the rebound we saw last week. Oil rose a little bit, but Brent crude and natural gas were down slightly. And in terms of the 10-year treasury, that remained more or less unchanged at 0.75%. In terms of sectors, we've seen airlines pick up quite a bit. Grant, what's your take on airlines? Well, I, I I think they were in a hole there for a little bit. We're we're seeing uh, air travel completely come to a to a screeching halt. Uh, we're not seeing business people or, or, or conferences, so airlines were were taking a, a big hit. But we saw at the end of the day here today that U.S. airlines and the Treasury were able to reach an agreement for uh, 25 billion uh, bailout. Some of the the uh, terms are, are still really being finalized, but it, it seems like they have reached a deal for, for the bailout, which I think is really important because uh, airlines are, are one of the probably the most hurt sectors that we're, we're seeing right now. Uh, further, you know, Amazon is now at an all-time high. Uh, they're, they're hiring because uh, online deliveries and everything are, are surging there. So those are two market movers today. Uh, but overall, I, I think it's good to see that the uh, we're seeing the government still be able to make deals and still try to provide stimulus. Yep. Uh, the one thing I saw that looked pretty good today was Procter & Gamble. Their their shares rose about 2% in what we've seen the extended trading so far. Uh, they're actually up 15% year to date in 2020. I mean, they raised their dividends in a time where course, many, many companies are slashing theirs. They, they raised their dividend, their quarter dividend, dividend 6% or up to 79 cents. So PNG is an interesting one. Um, in terms of what we saw last week on a political front, the Senate adjourned after the Democrats blocked Mitch McConnell's bid to add uh, 250 additional uh, billion dollars in small business aid. And a lot of that came from Senator uh, Ben Cardin of, you know, Democrat Maryland objected to the requests from Mitch McConnell to quickly approve the funding. Uh, one of the big things the Democrats 
are worried about is, you know, people who don't have uh, pre-existing banking relationships, they want to make sure they can also receive the aid. Uh, and then there's also discussions on tweaks to, you know, the small business aid program and, and more money for, for, for hospitals and states. So Congress was temporarily at an impasse. I think it, I think it somewhat makes sense there, uh, trying to to have provisions for for people who don't have banking relationships, because we saw that a lot of the funds were flowing to companies who had already uh, drawn uh, drawn down on their credit the month before, or, or were active customers. Uh, so, in in order to be able to to reach a, a broader range of small businesses, I I, I do think it makes sense. Uh, that said, we do need more funding for. Uh, for small businesses, we're, we're seeing a lot of the flows going into construction companies while health hotels and restaurants are are losing out on, on being accepted for these. I think that the, the government's going to have to step in at some point here and, and really give some more direction on uh, who's who's able to receive these loans, because if it's at the discretion of the banks, uh, I, I think that may beat some of the, the stimulus, the, the intention of the stimulus to really help small businesses, especially if we think about hotels and restaurants, because maybe they're, they're needing it the most. The, the one thing we have to consider is, I think there's going to be several phases. And so does it make sense for every phase to be the hill to die on? Right. I mean, Mitch McConnell, <laughs> which which I'm afraid is what's going to happen. And I, I, I get it because, you know, this is the largest thing we've seen since the Great Recession. And, and we've been very proactive. But but there is a matter of trying to pass things quickly as opposed to, you know, finessing it. So it's it's perfect. Um, so we'll, we'll see, you know, there's more phases. We'll, you know, there, there is a risk that small businesses are going to be exhausting their funding. Um, so, so we'll see how, you know, future negotiation, negotiations go, but there, there's certainly been a couple hiccups. Uh, overall, though, I think it's been some of the least policy paralysis we've seen over several years, which is, you know, the sign of optimism, whereas, you know, I, I mean, there's been years of people saying, I said it's the greatest deliberative body in the country. And over the last, I mean, as, as long as I remember in recent memory, it's been kind of a, a sick joke. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but Starting but, off strong with the politics train. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, there seems to be a little bit of movement. So that's all we can hope for, I guess, right now in a body that's been so dysfunctional over several, several years. Um, we've seen j jobless claims jump by 6.6 .6 million. We've lost 10% of the workforce over the last uh, few weeks. So, you know, in total, um, you know, you've had over more than 16 million Americans lose their jobs over three weeks. Uh, Grant, what further insight do we have on these recent jobs reports, uh, especially the one that came out most recently that the Labor Department reported on Thursday? Well, the, the St. Louis Fed came out with some, some very interesting numbers. I'll share some of those right now. Uh, so between uh, 2010, February 2010 and February uh, 2020, there were about a little under 25 million jobs created. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, just in the past three weeks, we saw initial joblessness claims jump to 16 million. Um, so that is 
uh, almost about two thirds of, of that just wiped out over in the last three weeks. Uh, and then just to compare the last three weeks to the, the great the Great Recession we saw in 08, between the, the peak to trough, we saw uh, just below 9 million, uh, 8.7 uh, million jobs lost. So we're, we're seeing that we're, we're almost doing that on a weekly basis here. Uh, so we, we did see the $2.2 trillion that's supposed to help uh, with with helping people uh, stay employed and, and get it, but I, I, I I, I think we're going to continue to see jobs lost. Uh, we saw California, New York, and Michigan saw the largest increases last week, uh, and those are also some of the states that got hit hit the hardest with uh, with the coronavirus pandemic. You know, overall, I, I think we could see unemployment continue to to jump in, into the double digits uh, moving forward. What's what about you, Drew? What's your take on on this? Well, the bifurcation of unemployment is going to be really interesting because, you know, as you mentioned, California, New York, and Michigan, they're the epicenters of the crisis. And coincidentally, they've also seen some of the largest increases in, in jobless claims. So when this is all said and done, it, it's going to be very interesting to see which states have what levels of unemployment and what are going to require uh, the, most, the most funding in the aftermath. Right, and and to see how fast those jobs come back, because we we may see that uh, companies may try and become a little more efficient and, and not hire back all the workers that they furloughed or or laid off. Uh, so we may see uh, unemployment continue to rise and and then may be flat before we get back down to to the low percentages that we saw back in uh, just just a couple weeks ago. I mean, it's kind of uh, incredible that three weeks we've already lost 16 million jobs. It's just pre pretty, pretty staggering. Yeah, I mean, retail is going to be the big one to look for, but then you got to think of more consultative industries too, like advertising. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of bleeding. I mean, people, companies have been spending less on advertising as is. So, what do you, you know, advertising expenditures look like, and what does that mean for all those agencies out there? especially which are largely domiciled in coastal cities. So there's just a lot of factors uh, going on. But, you know, as we move into, you know, the, we, we've had the policy side, we're seeing a little bit of more optimistic news in terms of health. And, and the result of that is that the White House is now weighing in a new uh, panel to map, you know, what the recovery is going to look like. I mean, currently you have a panel that's focused on what's going on at hand. But, you know, in terms of when we're looking at, you know, um, daily issues of safety and, and testing capacities and prevention, but there's discussion that the White House is going to create an economic panel. Um, some of the members might be the same, but there's going to be different, um, you know, members as well. That's all in kind of the discussions are in their earlier stages, but, you know, there might be Steve Mnuchin will probably be on, of course, but then you've got uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, uh, Jared and Ivanka, you know, Larry Kudlow might be involved, along with some others. Um, namely, you know, you have a couple, couple uh, you have like, for example, um, Kevin uh, Hassett, who is the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, and he just recently returned to the White House. He, he might also serve on the panel. So, We'll, we'll, we'll see what that looks like and how they address business um, 
you know, needs as they, as they try and troubleshoot our recovery. I think it's important to, to, to create this, uh, this panel. I guess they're also almost calling it like a commission because it's going to be a little more uh, longer lasting. They, they were thinking about including people both from the public and private sector. I think it's really important that they, they do include some folks from the, from the private sector. You know, overall, I think it really is going to show how they're going to have to improve areas of our public health infrastructure to be able to identify new cases and track uh, infected infected people and, and the prevention of the outbreak from flaring up again as as we get into the September October uh, November months where where we could see a, a rebound of cases but uh, I I think the the more people who are on this and and talking about this and discussing how we can uh, one move move out of this pandemic and then to uh, how to prevent it from happening again is is really important as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Well, be and. And it will also be important to look at which indices are represented in the panel and how nonpartisan or I should say bipartisan uh, the nature of the panel will be because uh, you're going to need to have, I guess, a slew of people across, you know, what is a broad political aisle. I mean, two parties, but obviously um, parties are quite segmented right now on, on terms of, of what's necessary for a recovery. You know, you got your Keynesian guys, but then you have, you know, your more traditional Hayek guys and uh, there's got to be, you know, some kind of accommodation to have all those different intellectual camps in there, I imagine. But, you know, I mean, apart from the, that task force, uh, I mean, we, we should mention, you know, outside of a, of a political realm and a policy realm, everything the fund, the Fed has done. So the Fed has certainly acted quite a bit faster than, than they had in the you know Great Recession, so I mean we've seen them take some bold steps right away. Uh, Grant, let's kind of dive into what they've done so far, and maybe a little bit about what what might be to come. Well, I think it shows first of all how how important the Fed is for them to be able to act independently and, and not really have that the same issues that we're seeing in Congress. Uh, but they're able to act and they acted fast. I think it shows that they learned uh, from 2008. And so we saw right away in, in early March that they uh, cut the cut the interest rate by uh, 50 basis points. And then uh, two weeks later, cut by another percentage to pretty much near, near zeros. Uh, I think this also shows that uh, if Donald Trump had, uh, President Trump had gotten his way that the, in the Fed had already lowered rates, they, they wouldn't have any maneuverability uh, during this, this, this uh, crisis. So I think Jerome Powell was able to weather the storm there. But we're, we're also really seeing them, uh, not just with the rate cuts, but also with uh, crediting, uh, credit and lending programs, we're able to inject more than $6 trillion into the economy. Uh, so it really looks like uh, they won't let liquidity problems uh, become insolvency issues like they like we seen in 2008. Uh, there, there's a laundry list of of activities they're doing really in the in the credit space to make sure that currency swaps, municipal debt, uh, even corporate debt is is uh, able to stay liquid. Which which I think they're they're really overall the Fed's doing a fantastic job to make sure that the U.S. economy doesn't go into a complete freefall. Yeah, on March 19th, they announced they'd have a new operation focusing on currency swaps that's, you know, really geared towards 
know, institutions that, that, that might need dollar denominated assets. Uh, I mean, I think your point about Jerome is, you know, a poignant one. Um, you've seen a lot less, you know, bickering back and forth from the executive to the Fed recently. Uh, so that's, I wonder why that is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good to see at least. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, they, they, they have to find ways to support the treasury's payment protection program. Um, and, and, you know, they, they've got to make sure, uh, you know, that there's going to be a lot of corporate bonds that slide from, fallen angels uh they're going to be you know downgraded um so so there's going to be a need to to really shore up bonds from from states and munis as well um you know you know the, the the country's obviously really segmented you know in terms of what state debt looks like too right so i i mean uh, you know debt in detroit for yeah i look like different than debt from somewhere else or or you know vice versa so that's going to be something that's um, really important when we're when we're looking at you know states that are indebted and have lower quality bonds. Yes, and just and just the the speed at which they were able to enact these policies and and uh, and get the fund uh, maneuver their balance sheet um, in order to help with uh, with the lending program, also to deal with the modification to the asset restrictions from Wells Fargo because. A lot of Wells Fargo clients were getting turned down for the uh, PP loans, um, so it's just just overall. I think the Fed's doing a doing a great job, as you said. We're basically corporate bonds uh, be, begin to decrease, and I think they're going to have to continue to provide liquidity over the next couple of months here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and some of the stuff we've seen, you know, as a res- I mean, as a result, we talked a little bit about how the markets corrected, but. I think we should segue into the fact that, uh, I mean, ETFs have been one of the biggest uh, gainers, you know, uh, ETF, you know, they're, they've got, you know, we've seen a huge, uh, I mean, there's a 20, you know, $23.3 billion of, of funds in only seven trading days uh, recently. And um, so we're seeing a lot of people fly into a lot of inflows into ETFs right now. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. I, I think one of the reasons for this is we're we're seeing a lot of uh, optimists, so a lot of just regular mom and pop investors who are using ETFs are uh, are looking at the massive fiscal and monetary stimulus that we're seeing right now uh, over this pan- the Corona pandemic, and they're seeing that. Uh, they're buying, trying to buy the dip there, and, and what better way to do that than have a broad ETF? Uh, that said, we're, we're also seeing huge flows uh, into some of the healthcare sector. Uh, so, in the the State Street Spider healthcare sector, as well as the the BlackRock iShares U.S. Medical Devices, um, we saw you know almost half a billion flow into to, to uh, the iShares as well as almost 2 billion flow into the uh, state street at just in just in a week so we're, we're still seeing ETFs uh, continue to to have funds flow in it even as we see uh, cash being come out of, of mutual funds and, and other aspects like that so um, it, it's a it's an interesting investment moving forward 
Um, but one thing we should talk about too, and I know you're pretty excited about these, is uh, look like the first ETFs that are actively managed are uh, now available in the marketplace. So why don't you walk us through, through some of those, Drew, and, and what your thoughts are on those? Yeah, so, you know, American Century, you know, they launched what, what are referred to as the first actively managed hidden asset ETFs. Um, and, you know, what, what, what they are is unlike, you know, a traditional ETF, uh, these ANTs don't have to disclose portfolio holdings daily. And they, you know, they, they're really uh, a big, big upside for active managers who are, you know, for, for actively uh, trade for active traders. Um, I mean, there might be a couple that disclose holdings, you know, monthly and some might disclose them, um, you know, the, their holdings quarterly, uh, but we've seen a real, you know, pop in valuation. So, you know, they created, uh, the American Century created the Focus Dynamic Growth ETF, the FDG, uh, and then the American uh, Century Focused Large Cap Value ETF, the FLV. Um, and since, you know, it started trading, the FDG, you know, popped up nearly 13% um, on, on April 2nd, and then the FLV was up almost 12%. Um, you know, the first day, uh, they both traded, you know, about 100,000 shares each. So it's just, you know, a really interesting new new space to be to be looking at. I think it's great for, for, for the consumers, you know, being able to have access to these, uh, you know, actively managed products because, you know, you, you do have structured mutual funds um, that have access to this. And I also think that's maybe why, uh, you know, you see people move into maybe some of these volatility control hybrid indices, being able to have consumers have access to these really quantitative thought out strategies and, and now to have uh, being able to buy shares of an actively managed and not have to have huge flows into maybe a, uh, a hedge fund or a venture capital or, or something like that. You're, you're able to actually have actively managed money for the consumer. And so I think it's, uh, I think it's great and it's, and it's good for, to have a, uh, another uh, bonus ETF here uh, to, to the marketplace overall. Well, I think people needed a, something, a middle ground between, you know, passively managed ETFs and uh, mutual funds, which can be quite expensive. The expense ratios on mutual funds has obviously been, you know, point of discussion and it's been a huge drag on, on performance, right? And right now we see the FDG and the FLV. Um, I mean, the, the FDGs right now cost 45 basis points to hold and the FLV is 42 basis points. So it's, you know, it's not quite the seven basis point, but it's not, you know, the, the one plus percent either, you know, you might see on, on several mutual funds. Um, and, and right now, these two initial AMTs, you know, they're, they're looking at uh, between 40 and 60, uh, 60 stocks with, within, the, within the fund. So, um, you know, that, that, that's this, the initial structure so far. So, uh, I mean, you know, other banks, other banks will, I think, definitely issue similar ones and we'll see how the space kind of plays out and, and, and which ones prove to be the most competitive, but it's always fascinating when we have a new, um, you know, a, a new asset class or a new, a new product line to, to discuss and, and to come into market. Guess we should hop back into uh, oil. Um, there's definitely, <laughs> definitely been 
major changes on that front. Uh, so, you know, there's been a production cut. Um, you know, we've, ag we've agreed on that. Um, and uh, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of initial, a lot of initial issues, you know, in terms of um, the production cut. I mean, Mexico, for one, uh, was a big holdout. Uh, they, they wanted to, you know, they initially were allocated to cut, you know, $400,000, uh, 400,000 barrels uh, per day. Uh, now they're, you know, cutting 100,000 barrels per day. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's going to amount for something like 10% of the global um, oil supply. So, you know, that was a coordinated, you know, um, foreign policy effort on the behalf of a lot of different countries of uh, the United States included. Um, Saudis, obviously, uh, you know, the Saudis and the Russians have been in a tit for tat price war, which has really um, affected, affected markets. But, but it will be, you know, interesting to, to see. Um, the, I mean, the other thing is it's really been an active move on governments on behalf of the producer versus the consumer. Uh, in order to raise oil prices. That's something that I couldn't imagine the United States doing 10 years ago, um, you know, because we we're just such a consumer centric, but now, you know, in terms of gas and, and, and our reliance on automobiles, but now that we're uh, an exporting country and we're a big producer country as well, uh, the effects of the consumer have been more muted. So this has really represented a major policy shift on, on U.S. oil markets and U.S. foreign policy that we haven't seen, really that I can ever think of. But yeah, and we and, and we also saw uh, President Trump pop in because he uh, earlier this year we saw him saying that uh, you know the the plunge in oil prices was good for the consumer because it meant lower gas prices. I don't know the last time I remember seeing gas uh, below two dollars, uh, which which I'm a fan of. Uh, but then we, we quickly saw that uh, he retreated on that and, and hopped in and had uh, hopped into the conversations and discussions because we do see that uh, the oil oil industry in the United States is uh, a huge job provider down in uh, Texas and Alaska and, and uh, North Dakota. So we, we saw him jump in there. But it, overall, the the cut is historic, but it's really just overall insignificant, in my opinion, uh, largely because the demand in oil has has fallen uh, faster than the cuts and, and just has dropped off with the coronavirus with airline airlines uh, not flying. And then also just in terms of people doing their daily commutes, you know, people aren't going to the, um, the gas pump. So I think we're just overall uh, seeing a decrease in demand. Uh, that is significantly more than what the cut is. We saw Goldman Sachs estimate that uh, the corona shutdowns will depress oil demand by uh, 19 million barrels per day in April and May. Uh, so still, we, we're still having an oversupplied market even after the cut. Uh, so it, it, it is good to see that they were able to agree on a cut, and I think it helped stabilize uh, the market because we were seeing oil prices really really plunge, but I, I still think that there is going to be a, a oversupply, so oil prices aren't going to bump uh, anytime soon. This but overall, oh, go for it. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, I mean, this represented 23 different countries, right? Um, they're going to meet again in mid-June to determine if 
more steps are necessary. But I think the big thing, you know, the United States has got to be worried about is you know, now that we are such a, you know, an oil, we're an oil production uh, country, but in terms of our break-even analysis, we can't compete with a lot of the countries that were, were in this, in this block. So, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be, we're going to really have to gauge on, on, on what happens because I mean, and I don't have the price points in front of me, but you know, the Saudis can obviously, you know, produce oil at much, much, much lower cost than the United States or, or Canada for that. matter, Or anyone, or anyone really for that matter. I mean, they produce oil at such a, such a low price point compared to everyone else that that's why they were able and okay with with really setting the price there and, and going to that price war with with Russia but I think you're absolutely right it's it it could become another national security issue if we think about us, our our need for oil and if we're not we're not producing uh, it at a, at a price point everyone else we we may need to reconsider that um, and who knows? Maybe we'll we'll see a surge in uh, renewables, but uh, for the time being, oil we're so oil dependent that I think we're going to have for for national security purposes. We we need to uh, make sure our oil producers stay in business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, I mean, and, and with with that, I mean, let's let's kind of talk about you know, what else we should be looking at in terms of markets and maybe some other you know interesting developments that have occurred. Um, either because of the pandemic or if you got anything that's uh, outside of, you know, the, the COVID-19, I'd be happy to hear that too. But <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll give you a, a couple things I'm looking at. Um, and so uh, this week I'm, I'm really looking at to see how the America's biggest banks are reporting their earnings this week for Q1. Uh, so JPM and, and Wells Fargo were today. I think we saw huge decreases in um, JPM's uh, revenue. We see we have Bank of America, Citi, and Goldman tomorrow, and then Morgan Stanley on Thursday. I think it's going to be uh, <laughs> pretty pretty ugly. Uh, so just to see how that happens. Uh, another thing to look out for is uh, China's reporting on their first quarter GDP on Friday. Uh, so it's supposed to show its first contraction in, in more than 40 years, which is which is pretty significant uh, if we think about the, the second largest economy and, and the, where this uh, all started in Wuhan. Um, and then one one last thing is, is today, uh, it looks like uh, the governor for California, Gavin uh, Newsom, just unveiled his uh, lifting the, the states from the coronavirus restriction. So he had um, six major indications and, and he's keeping the stay at home and uh, actually looks like he's trying to get ahead of everyone and, uh, and rolling out this. It looks like he's working with uh, Washington and o Oregon governors as well to have a, a PAC West rollout together. Uh, I, I think it's good uh, that, that we're seeing some governors begin to talk about it. I know that there was um, in the Northeast, there were some governors who were New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania we're, we're talking as well and uh, I, I think it's it's good that we're, we're trying to coordinate as a as a country I'm, I'm sure uh, the White House is, is also in, in talks with with most of these governors but it I think it's good that people are starting to maybe have the end in sight and be prepared for for when we are going to be able to 
to not be in shelter in place anymore. Um, and so um, that's, that's what I'm looking out for. In terms of news outside of the coronavirus, I don't necessarily know if I have one. Um, I, I know people are, are looking for things to do. One show that I've been watching um, is called Money Heist on Netflix. It's also called La Casa de Papel. Uh, if you're looking for something to watch because you've already watched Tiger King or, or, or something else, that, that is something I will uh, give as a recommendation to, to our listeners out there. No, I watched what about it. you, Drew? What are you What are you looking for? Yeah, no, I watched uh, Contagion last week, and it was about the stupidest damn thing I've done in a long time. Um, putting myself through that you know. <laughs> so, during a pandemic, right, right. <laughs> Especially the parallels are just you know stupid too. You know, with the being a zoonotic that or originates from China, and then it is it, it's, it's it was it, if you if you revisit it it's it's you know kind of what we're going through so it's interesting but also uh, horrifying and frustrating at the same time but um it was pre-planned they did it on purpose right. <laughs> uh well right now my screen is flashing that we're halting funding for the who uh as we conduct the coronavirus review so that's going to be um definitely something something to look at uh, i mean that's largely been to I mean, I guess, I guess the the inclination is that the WHO has been uh, maybe a little soft on on China and their and their role in in letting the, the rest of the world know. But um, you know, there, there could be other things in that. In terms of uh, policy and what governments are doing, price gouging during anything is a huge concern. But especially during a pandemic, uh, I mean, we saw in New York, police arrested a man who was stockpiling medical gear. He was selling it at a you know, a seven time markup. Um, you know, we've seen that across a number of countries too. Uh, I mean, in, in the Indonesia, you know, they seized uh, $600,000, 600,000 masks from hoarders. Um, you know, so you have a lot of countries really, really trying to crack down on hoarders and people who are trying to make record amounts of profits on what are now uh, very desperate people. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of legislation and economists who are going to be discussing you know how to combat you know um price gouging uh during during this this uh, epidemic um, in, in ways we've seen with hurricanes but it's just it's just at a much larger scale because you know the entire planet is now facing a, you know this health scare and, and and pretty much everyone's in lockdown so i mean price gouging is going to be a big thing to look at i think um but yeah you know who as i mentioned what that looks like uh you know california's trying to they might be opening up um some some state economies might be opening up in early may so how they play that out is going to be something to look for and you know whether we see a re-spike in those states or or whether they're able to you know effectively mitigate a resurgence and spike if, if they're use, using, you know, the same social distancing uh, methods we've become accustomed to. So I think those are all things to really keep an eye out for as, as, as we uh, kind of live through this thing. Yeah. Price gouging. We, we saw on uh, Amazon and, and eBay and, and other places where they, they had to actually uh, remove prices. I think we talked about it on a couple podcasts ago. We saw, uh, you know, six ounce hand sanitizers going for uh, over a hundred, hundred bucks. And, and so I, I completely agree. It's, it's the fine line between uh, capitalism and then also responsibility for, uh, for human health. So um, 
hopefully we, we don't see too much more price gouging, but I'm sure it, it will happen as we move forward, especially with, with the healthcare and the surgical masks and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I hope you guys are uh, keeping safe out there. Um, we're trying to keep the quality of this thing as best as we can. Uh, we're on Zoom. I think I'm going to uh, go pick up my Yeti mic here shortly. So uh, I'll have that back, <laughs> which will be nice. I've missed that thing. Um, but, but again, <laughs> you know, we'll be back on next week. Uh, thanks for listening, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.